Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Last night you should have received your email of our focused prayer this week about our families. And this week we're going to focus on broken homes. The foundation or the foundational unit of our society is the home. And when the home begins to deteriorate, it affects everything around us. Broken homes, uh, you, you, you observe a broken home and you can observe broken people. Because the devil is a master at breaking the home up and then destroying the people involved in it. There are people struggling with sin and neglect and uh, lack of prayer in their life, lack of a godly influence in their life, temptation, and the list goes on at the different ways that the enemy comes against us. And when restitution is not made, deep-seated anger and bitterness and unforgiveness rises up in us, damaging even further what the devil has set out to do. It is God's will that we as apostolic men and women deal with these situations in a way that can bring peace and healing. We serve a life-changing God who is in the life-changing business. And no matter what you've been through, no matter how bad you think it may be, and I'm not diminishing anybody's circumstances here this morning, but God is a healer and he's a restorer. And he can bring peace and healing to whatever situation arises in our life. And here's what we have to focus on as men and women who have made a commitment to serving Jesus Christ. We may not be able to control all the situations that arise in our life. But we do have the ability to control how we respond to them. And that's what we need to pray for this morning. We're going to pray that God would give us strength to deal with feelings of rejection and loneliness and grief. We're going to pray that the Spirit of the Lord would help us resolve anger in our lives that are caused by the situations. And we're going to ask God to grant courage to face fears. You know, as men, sometimes we like to stand flat-footed and throw our shoulders back and bow our chest out and say that we're not fearful but in reality we all face a fear and God has the ability to help us overcome that and he'll help us to express our hurts with honesty before us as we go to the Lord this morning let's focus on these three principles and ask God to help us and that the spirit of the Holy Ghost knowing we're confident knowing that the spirit of the Holy Ghost can move in our life and help transform us and point us in the right direction. Father, we love you. God, we're so thankful for the Spirit of the Holy Ghost that has the ability to heal, that has the ability to restore and to cover us with your grace and peace. I ask this morning, mighty God, that you would help us when anger and bitterness and resentment rises up in our life. 
I ask that the Spirit of the Holy Ghost would check us, Lord, that you would search us over that you would help us to understand the importance as apostolic men and women, how, how important it is to respond in the right way, God, to respond to the situation in a godly way. You have the power, the authority, and the ability to instill within us that right spirit, that spirit that can rise up against the enemy and say, not today, devil. You will not destroy my home today. You will not take my children today. You will not... You will not take from me what I have fought for and worked hard so for, for so long to bring into the kingdom of God. We thank you today, Jesus, for the power that you give us, but we also want to thank you for the power that's coming into our lives, knowing God, knowing God that you have all authority to help us, to heal us, to restore us, and to give us the strength to make this journey in this race that we call life. We thank you for that, Lord, today. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise and rejoice across the house. Thanking him for what we know he's going to do. And today, I just want you, how about another hand clap? And that was for my good friend, Brother Chris Osborne, who's coming to bring us the word this morning. And uh, because I have the mic, let me say I appreciate him so much for what he means for this church and for, for what he does. You, some of you may not get to see him on Sunday afternoons, but I get to see him quite a bit. And he, he does so much to further the kingdom of God. And I'm thankful for him and I love him. Can we give that to the Lord? Can we just thank him for what he's done? And for who he is, we love you, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord yet again. And I don't want to embarrass her, but I do want to say that I'm thankful to see Sister Anna Claveria here this morning. I'm thankful for the hand of God, the healing hand of God. Well, praise the Lord. Thankful to be here, thankful for another opportunity to hear the word of God, to just put our hearts in it and put it in our hearts. I know that if we do that, we can be successful people in this world and in the kingdom of God. Won't you join me this morning, book of 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verses 1 through 5. We've been talking about grace here the last couple of Sundays, and we're going to continue that this morning. We've talked about the reach of grace or the, the, uh, the grace at un unlikely places. We're talking about grace that confronts. And so this morning, we're just going to talk about the reach, the reach of grace in this third, in this third chapter of this study this morning. I'm thankful for the life of David. David is a is a man that we see him in every in every conceivable position in life. He's been down, he's been up, he's had battles, he's had circumstances that's come against him. He's even done things on his own that's caused those circumstances to arise. But I'm thankful that we see grace throughout David's life. We see him when he's low, God just extends grace to him. 
and he helps him to get back into a rightful place with him. But I'm thankful that in David's life, we don't only see David receive grace, but we see him extend grace to others. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we witness the reach of grace in his life. Second Samuel 18, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says, And David numbered the people that were with him and set captain, captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth for if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die, will they care for us. But now thou art worth 10,000 of us. Therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best, I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands in verse 5, the Bible says, And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. David said, Deal gently with him for my sake. Deal gently with the young man for me. This morning, how far would you go to reserve or preserve some precious or lost article? Consider this true story in his book titled, Are You Fascinated? A man named Ken Tucker tells the story of Bill Adams, CEO of a large hospital in Virginia. Adams was told a woman had called the hospital and was very frantic and so he followed up to find a young woman whose mother had just died of cancer and she lost her wedding ring. The woman said her parents had been married for over 50 years and she wanted the ring so that she could put it back on her mother's finger before the funeral. Bill was so moved by this story that he made it his personal pursuit to find this ring. He went to the ward where the woman had spent her final days he and his staff looked everywhere, but they could not find it, and no ring turned up. He returned to his office, but he felt so dissatisfied with his, even his own efforts, he just couldn't get it out of his mind. And so he went to the basement of the hospital to examine the laundry chute. Now, I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a hospital, some pretty bad things happen in hospitals, and the laundry winds up in the basement but he climbed into the laundry chute. He started digging, and to his surprise, he found the missing wedding ring, and he presented it with, to the daughter when he called her and she came to the hospital. But even years later, Bill can never forget the look on her face when he presented that lost article to her. He, he expended every bit of energy he took his own time to find one piece of lost treasure for someone 
and was able to put it back in her hands. Perhaps we've all misplaced or lost something of value through the years, perhaps an heirloom or a gift from a loved one that has been given to us and has since passed on. If and when that ever occurs, we will do everything that we can to find that lost piece of history or that lost piece of article that we've lost. And so if we will go that far to find some intangible or tangible object, some inanimate object that has no ability to give us anything other than memories, how far should we go to reach the lostness of this world and the lost souls that fill it? Whether it's a precious object or whether it's a soul, what amount of effort would be expended to reach that lost person? Hear me today, even if individuals know that there is a slim chance that something or something or someone can be found, people in this world, whether we want to believe it or not, will go to the nth degree. They will go to, to the uttermost to find and to save that which is lost. We see this in the Bible in Luke 15 in the lost and found chapter of the Bible. Here, we find a father that regains his lost son, a woman who regains her lost coin, and a shepherd who finds his lost sheep. But in 2 Samuel chapter 18, we see a different story. It's unfortunate, but it's chapter 18 of 2 Samuel that we find the lost and lost chapter of the Bible. It is unfortunate, but the coup that staged was staged by Absalom, David's son, had come to a close. But even though there was a coup that was thwarted against him to try to overturn his kingship, David, in the last minute, reached out to someone to save his son and not to harm him. The king hoped that in all of the things that had transpired, all of the things that had happened, all the things that Absalom had done, and all the things that perhaps David had not done, that in this last minute, that Absalom would have a change of heart. However, we read that in the heat of the battle, Joab disregarded the order and failed to heed, and the request made by David was of none effect, and the life of Absalom was taken. Just like the characters in this lost and found chapter of Luke 15, People will go to the extraordinary lengths to reach beyond what is customary and sometimes even what is acceptable to reach the loss. And so here in this lesson we see that David went beyond what was customary. David went beyond what was, what was even thought of to happen at the time and he reached for Absalom and he continued to reach for Absalom. It's in this lesson here that we'll find a grace that refuses to let go. It's here that we're going to see a, a grace that refuses to stop reaching over and over again. It's here that we see when David is standing with everyone else around him who has lost all hope in the situation, David continued to hope on Regardless of how Absalom had wronged David, the father in him, that father 
spirit in him loved him enough to continue to reach for him. But unfortunately, Absalom had absolutely no regard for his father or for the things that David cared for. You know, it's somewhat typical in our society for the outgoing generation to somehow or somewhat fight the incoming generation. We see that played out here now where we have the baby boomers and those that may be a little bit older somewhat confused about how the thinking processes of this uh, generation X and these millennials and, and even there's even a new generation beyond that. I don't know what it's called. It's called something out of this world. I don't know, but it, they, they fight against that. They, they, they don't understand it. They don't they don't see what their thinking is. But what is not so typical is for a new generation that is coming in to be indifferent to the preceding generation going out. But what is even more unusual in our story today is the way that David acted throughout all of this, his behavior throughout all of this story. Hear me today. David was not a softy. David was not a soft individual. David was not someone that you would feel all warm and cozy and fuzzy with if he came around. No, David was a man's man. David was a hard man. David was a man of battle. He, his hands were bloody from battle. And the Bible says that even in his later years, he got even better at that. He started out one way, but he, through battle, through, through intense battle, he just got harder and harder. He, he was a man of warfare. He would have been a, a very high-ranking official if he were here today in our world, a man of war, a man of battle. And he excised his, his authority at, at a moment's notice. But in this story, he was not so swift to exact that judgment. David was a chief among men, a giant killer. He excelled in warfare and would only refrain from going to battle if those closest around him begged him not to go. Yet, when it came to his son, when it came to his boy, his behavior was atypical. And that hard-hearted exterior seemed to melt away. And David showed a father's love. You see, when it came to his son, he did not display that swift action taken in warfare. He did not display that swift action that he would take in a heated battle. But David showed the characteristics of a patient and understanding and loving father. Does that sound familiar to you today? If it does, it should. Because we have a father who is absolutely, he's swift in judgment. He has judgment in the palm of his hand, yet he decided to give us grace and to extend grace to us. He is a loving and understanding. He is a long-suffering and patient father. He is the father, and he is our father, and he has given us the grace that we need. David was much like our father, but what we must answer the question is who was Absalom? It's important to take a step back here 
and find out just who Absalom was. David had many wives, but only eight of them are named in Scripture. We'll find that in 2 Samuel 5 and 13. Three of those wives are more prominent in the biography of David and are placed more focus on them in Scripture. Michael, Saul's daughter, who's David. Hand, he won her hand in slaying the giant and performing other mighty acts. Abigail, who was originally married to Nabal and Bathsheba, Uriah's Ulam, and Nathan's story that we heard in a couple of lessons before. David and Bathsheba's son by the name of Solomon would reign in David's stead as king. But the five remaining wives of David were Ahinoam, Maacah, Haggith, Abital, and Eglah. We'll find that in 2 Samuel 3 and 1 Chronicles chapter 3. From these wives were born the princes of the house of David. Nineteen sons, two who appear to have died in infancy. Absalom being the third and Amnon being the firstborn. And so to set the stage for this coming conflict... It's important to understand two very significant facts in this story. First, separating the first and third born sons was a man by the name or a child by the name of Daniel. He does not appear to be a factor in scripture leading most scholars to believe that he died at a young age. Therefore, of the 19 sons, the two eldest in the line to succeed David would be Amnon and Absalom. Secondly, we must understand that the Bible mentions 19 named sons of David, but it only mentions one daughter by the name of Tamar, who is Absalom's full sister. From these roots will emerge deceit. From these roots will emerge a bitterness and a rivalry that will threaten individuals, an entire family, and an entire nation. But hear me, in all of this, in all of the deceit, in all of the hurt, in all of the things that should have went one way and went another, all of the bitterness that arises from this must be healed. And the only way that it can be healed, I submit to you today, is through grace, 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 grace. I've often heard that you just can't get too far from grace. I've often heard that you can't go far enough that grace cannot reach you or that you cannot go so far and become so lost that grace won't be able to find you. I believe that that's true. I believe that there's nothing in this world that you could do to get beyond the love of God and as soon as you turn your life back to him and toward him, we find grace in the time of trouble. But hear me today. I submit to you today that we might not be able to get too far from the long arm of grace, but we can certainly drift from grace. We can drift away from grace, and that drift is not sudden. That drift is gradual. I don't believe that anyone sets out to be 
impervious to grace. I don't believe that anybody has a mind that they're just going to walk away from grace. Everybody wants grace. We hear this all over the world today. We're living in a dispensation of grace. But the grace has not been extended to you and I so that we can live however we want to live and do whatever we want to do. Because if we do that, if we allow ourselves to live however we feel, whatever feels right, whatever feels good, the only thing that will happen is we will begin to drift. I don't believe that the fall from grace is a sudden occurrence because drifting is a gradual process. It is an intermittent process and it happens over the course and the process of time. As people begin to drift, they gradually get further and further and further away from the long arm and the reach of grace. The Hebrew the Hebrew church was written to in the epistles to the Hebrew containing five warning passages. You may want to write this down. We won't read all of this today, but Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, Hebrews 3 and 7 through 14 and 13, Hebrews 5, 11 through 6 and 12, and Hebrews 10, 19 through 19, along with 12, 14 through 29. These passages of scripture mark a seemingly sudden dis- a departure, a departure or a, a deviance away from the common narrative that we find from the theme of the writer. Yet I believe that these passages of Scripture are contained here for a reason. The writer of Hebrews was writing to a church that had already begun to drift. The writer of Hebrews was attempting to write to them to shock them awake, to shake them and make them understand the importance of being connected to the body of Christ. The Holy Ghost underscores various dangers in our Christian walk, and one of them is the ability to drift. Hebrews 2 and 1 says that we are are to give sincere attention to what we were taught, lest they slip But the New King James says it like this, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We must. Not maybe, but we must. Steadfastly stay connected and to continue in the things with which we have been taught and the things that we have been heard. We must, hear me, we must stay connected to God and the things of God because if we are not connected to him, there is only one opportunity and one solution and that is to drift. You see, his reach is constant. His reach is constant toward us. But to make the equation complete and for everything to come together when his reach is constant toward us, our reach must be constant toward him. We must reach to God. In an earlier lesson, we saw that faith in man is faith in man reaching to God and reaching toward him. 
But grace, hear me today, grace is God's reach toward man and for his soul. God is always reaching. But when we lose our grip on grace and we begin to rely upon ourselves, we begin to drift away from the foundation that we have away from the moorings. F.B. Meyer wrote in The Way into Holiness, for everyone that definitely turns his back on Christ, for one, there are hundreds who drift from the Lord. Life's ocean is full of currents, any one which will sweep us past the harbor mouth, even when we seem nearest to it and carry us far out to sea. And so we must always continually be reaching toward God and the things of God. The ebb and the flow of life's ocean current seem to swirl against Absalom in his life. And unlike his father who had an anchor for the soul and unlike his father who had great hope and great confidence in his God, his third son did not have the same confidence and did not have the same effect in his life or the same sensitivity to God. Situations in Absalom's life caused him to become angry and bitter. And when things did not go his way, he began to drift. Can I tell you tonight or this morning that not everything is going to go the way we want it to go? It's never going to be just right. Everything is not going to just be roses all the time. We're going to have some pitfalls that we're going to have to navigate around. We're going to have family members that are going to do certain things to us, friends, co-workers. You can just fill in the blank. But hear me today. We can't allow those things to get in our spirit because if they are allowed to get in our spirit, a root of bitterness can grow. And when that bitterness grows, it can affect everything around us. Nothing will be right. No one will be right. You can't be satisfied on anything. The music is too loud. The music is too soft. This person worships too exuberantly next to me. I don't like this person because they don't worship. I just don't want to be here anymore. And the next thing you know, you're a thousand miles away from where God wants you to be. Everything is not going to be just right. and Everything is not going to go our way. And when we feel wronged, we have the potential to let bitterness stir in our heart. You see, that's what happened to him. He felt wrong, and he demanded vengeance. He wanted David to take care of the situation. This is why it is so vitally important to stay connected, hear me, to the grace of God. Absalom wanted David to take care of the situation in his life. But what he didn't understand was that he was being shown grace himself. It is absolutely paramount to have a sensitivity to God and the things of God. Because not only can grace be extended to us, but we are to extend that grace to other people in our life. And staying connected 
to the grace, understanding that if it were not for grace, I wouldn't be standing here today. Takes a lot of load off when we're trying to convict others of what they may or may not be doing. You see, it most likely started with just a normal sibling rivalry. Absalom was one of the few sons born to David in Hebron before being crowned king over all Israel. It's very interesting to know that Absalom was born to David in Hebron. Hebron being one of the cities of refuge. You see, Absalom was born into grace and mercy, yet he didn't understand all of that. Like boys, Amnon and Absalom most likely vied for their parents' affection and even their attention. Perhaps even at an early age, they understood that they belonged to a special family, the king of Israel. And perhaps even angst was provoked among those two boys as they vied for that affection and had comparisons against themselves and against their father of who was more like David, who was more like their father. As they fought back and forth, it is possible to deduce from later actions that Absalom even resented this, thus attempting later to outshine his father. But this attempt and his upward trajectory of his own self was interrupted by a very tragic event when Amnon devised a plan to trap Absalom's full sister, Tamar. And to make this sound as clean as I can, he violated her. Absalom discovered what had happened and he waited for his father to take care of that situation. The Bible says that even though David became very angry, we do not read that the king ever did or said anything to Amnon about what he had done. Second Samuel 13 and 21 says, but when the king David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Tamar remained desolate and Absalom despised despised his brother. Second Samuel 13 and 20, if we back up one, the Bible says, and Absalom, her brother, said unto her, hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister, he is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Absalom silently, silently hated his brother and expected his father to take care of the situation. But 2 Samuel 13 and 22, the Bible says, And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And so for two full years, this situation, this anger, this bitterness simmered in the heart of Absalom. Outwardly, everything seemed to be all right. He put his suit and tie on, polished his shoes, 
did what he was supposed to do outwardly everything seemed to be fine but inwardly the younger plotted his revenge against his oldest brother from that moment Amnon defiled Tamar Absalom plotted his revenge he eventually took that matter into his own hands he devised his own plans and he exacted his revenge and when his plan unfolded the Bible says in 2 Samuel 13 and 32 that Absalom took the life of Amnon Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men in the, the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. From the day it happened, he began to plot. He began to exact his revenge in his mind and play it out over and over and over again while exteriorly he was everything he was supposed to be. A model son, polished shoes, suit and tie, walking in. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. He put on a smile. He put on a good face. But inside, he was nothing but dead men's bones as the bitterness rooted in his life and took everything he had from him. It is not difficult to see that there is dysfunction all around this. Many marriages, poor parenting, failure to discipline, and the list can go on and on and on. But what we see overarching all of this deceit, what we see overarching all of this malintent is the grace that David was continually giving to these two men. Grace. Grace to those who seem to deserve it the least. Grace to those who only deserved judgment. What is most tragic is that Absalom failed to understand that while he was exacting his revenge, he failed to understand the grace that was being extended to him the whole entire time. It's important to note that in this world there are two types of people. One, those who receive grace and two, those who reject grace. Our thoughts and our actions can also be divided into two different categories. One being grace attractors and one being grace repellers. I'll give you some examples. Grace attractors are things such as faith, worship, Bible reading, the fruit of the Spirit, honesty, godly company, and the list can go on and on. Grace attractors are those things that I place myself in and those things that I place inside of myself that are 
unto God that are from God and that are completely honestly reaching toward God. You see, it's when we do these things, we attract the grace of God. But contrary to that are the grace repellers being unbelief, carnal minds and carnal thoughts, carnal pursuits and pride, rebellion, selfishness, hatred, wrath, envy, and the list can go on and on and on. Paul said that the list for the works of the flesh are replete. They are adultery. They are revilings. They are everything that you can think of that would be bad in this world, but the fruit of the Spirit is what we need in our lives to attract the grace of God to us. These works of the flesh, they override God's will and they edify self over him. But grace, hear me, shies away from those things. Grace does not want anything to do with that sort of thinking. That's why that's why possibly, possibly why Solomon said in Proverbs 3 and 34, surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. God resists the proud, but he extends grace to those who are humble and remain humble before him and in his sight. I don't know about you today, but I want to be a grace attractor. I want my life to be pleasing to God, and I want his grace in my life. I'm hurrying along, but Absalom's thoughts and behavior repelled grace, but love abused often becomes more determined. And that was the case with David. To those drifting, God shows more and more grace. A Christian mother was once asked if she had a favorite child. Emphatically, she replied, yes, the one who needs me the most. Hear me today, God is attracted to those people who are not ashamed to walk into his presence and say, I need you, God. Throughout everything in my life, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And hear me, when we do that, when we lift our hands and surrender and ask God to help us and need him, he will come to us. He will come to us. God seems to reserve favor for those who need him the most and his grace is profound toward undeserving people. It is profound to undeserving people. You see, grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve, but mercy is when you don't get something that you do deserve. I don't know about you, but I stand here as a man who didn't deserve God's grace. I deserve swift, exact judgment, but God was gracious to reach out to me when I reached out to him and saved my life. You see, Absalom needed grace, so he received a pardon from the king, what he did not deserve. The king showed him grace more and more, continually reaching for him again and again. Three years later, Absalom remained in hiding while his father grieved. That was grace in and of itself because the law said David had every right in the world to chase him down like a rabid dog and exact the judgment with, with, with which he would be just taken completely out. He had every right in the world, but David didn't pursue him. He allowed for him to live 
in peace. And later, three years, he lets him come back to where he is to Jerusalem and allows him to live in the city of Jerusalem in safety in a harbor where nothing could happen to him. All he had to do was receive the grace, but he didn't. He continued to try to exalt himself over his father over his father. He married. He had children and revealingly named his daughter Tamar after his sister. However, in 2 Samuel 15, we see that he used his influence to turn the hearts of the people toward himself and away from his father. Yet David graciously allowed his son to undermine him. And when Absalom finally declared himself king, David was gracious enough to retreat rather than fight him. Even when that rebellion reached its zenith, David would not lift a hand against his son. And he continued to hope that somehow, some way, his son would have a change of heart and could be reached by his father. We read it earlier, and the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, deal gently with him. For my sake. In this final decisive battle, David instructs the troops to be gentle with Absalom. And here we see a vivid portrait and a picture of what grace really is. But hear me, it goes far, far deeper than an earthly father's love for his son. But this kind of grace steps into a realm that is divine. This kind of grace steps into a realm that is divine. And like God, David did not stop reaching for his wayward child. His love overruled his justice. And when all hope seemed to be lost, grace responded with more grace. Hear me, though sin may abound, grace does much more abound. And grace through this story does not give up easily but what is even more tragic is that we see in this story that grace doesn't give up but we can give up we see regrettably that it reveals that grace is not irresistible we have our own will we have our own way God has given that a very prominent teaching in some Christian circles is that God's grace is irresistible and that whoever he chooses to save will just be saved through no fault of their own and through no effort of their own. But hear me, the Bible is replete with verse after verse, scripture after scripture that repudiates that kind of thinking. It talks about deceit, that deceit would lead to that way of thinking, that easy believism that God will just do what he's gonna do and I don't have to lift a finger. That's simply not true. If he's reaching, we must reach. If he's doing, we must do. And we must stay connected to the will and to the spirit of God. We see how life and humanity can resist God's grace. As certainly as Absalom resisted the grace of his father, God would not want anyone to perish. And so he continues to reach. He continues 
to get out. He, he, he continues to reach after mankind. But hear me, we have a voice in all of this. We have a voice in the matter. And we can either choose to do right or we can choose to do wrong. We can choose to attract the grace of God or we can choose to resist the grace of God. But I wonder if I've gathered with some people today that like Joshua in Joshua 24 and 15, I'm going to make a choice and I'm going to live for God. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord we simply have a choice. Matthew 24 and 37, and I promise I'm hurrying. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, saying, in effect, that God was willing, but man was unwilling. People can be shown grace, but they have the right to refuse it. 19th century British poet Francis Thompson penned the classic work, The Hound of Heaven. Thompson struggled with all sorts of issues, including immense poverty, poor health, and opium addiction. In the depths of his despair, he saw himself running from God. He realized it was not the hounds of hell, though, that were chasing after him, but it was the hound of heaven. He wrote, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I hid from him and under running laughter I sped from those strong feet that followed, followed after. In a man's uh, biography by the name of John Stott, he referred to this poem when he said he owed his faith in Jesus Christ not to the pursuit or his parents or his teachers but to Jesus Christ himself, the hound of heaven. He wrote, my faith is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to stay on my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. That's probably why David wrote in Psalm 23 and 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, we have a choice in this matter and we can choose life or we can choose death. But God's grace is always reaching, always following. Absalom resisted. And by the end of his life, his three sons were gone, either by natural death or perhaps they even died in battle. Hear me. All that was left was his daughter, Tamar, a perpetual and lasting show of the bitterness that engulfed his life, that took him down the road that he followed. Absalom's life was taken by David's men despite the admonition to keep him alive. And his body was not even given a proper burial. They threw him in a pit and threw stones on top of his body. But David, hear me, David, David never stopped reaching. God, hear me, is reaching for souls here today. I believe it right now in this house. God is reaching for souls that perhaps have even determined to walk away from him. They've reached the decision that I can't do this anymore. I won't do this anymore. I'm just simply not going to live this way anymore. But hear me, whether you walk away or not, God will never stop reaching for you. God will not stop reaching 
for you. The only thing that remains here and now is our choice to either receive it or to give it away. God is reaching. We can either receive it or we can resist. But as we receive it, hear me now. I'm coming to a close if you'll stand with me. As we receive it, we have to extend it back out to those around us. As we receive God's grace, we must remember that there are others around us that need our grace. And in so doing, when we reach, we are putting out God's plan in this world. When we reach toward God, towards others, we demonstrate God's very nature because souls are precious to God. Your soul is precious to God. Everyone standing around you, soul is precious and valuable to Him. And to Him, you are worth reaching. And so to those around you, are they worth reaching? That's the question that we need to ask today. Is God's people worth reaching? Are they valuable enough to me to reach out to them? To those who have possibly just made up their mind to turn away and walk away, we should never stop reaching for them. I thought about this the other day and I'm taking way more liberty than I should right here but if everyone who has ever been baptized and has received the baptism of the Holy Ghost in these altars if they were here today we'd have to do more than just put up some extra chairs but they would be wrapped around this building I would say multiple to multiple times and so are we doing what God has called us to do to those for whatever reason whether it be bitterness whether it be something else whether it be just a pull and the draw of the world, are we displaying God's nature by reaching out to them in love? Hear me today. Everyone under the sound of my voice has a choice to make in this very moment. We can either receive the grace of God or we can deny it and we can resist it. But hear me, nothing good will come from that. But if... If we receive it, if we receive God's grace in our lives right now, we can stand flat-footed and look others in the eye and say, if it wasn't for the grace of God, if it wasn't for the reach of God, and if it wasn't for my heart to be softened, to allow that reach to make it into my life, I don't know where I 
would be. I don't know about you this morning, but I want to receive the grace of God. I want to extend the grace of God, and I want to be who God has called me to be. Why don't we lift our hands right now? Why don't we lift our voices to heaven, and why don't we cry out to God and receive that grace? Let's receive it today. Let's ask Him to touch our hearts and to touch our minds. Come on, lift your voice to heaven and cry out to God. Give Him your words. Give Him your 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 praise and help Him. Help Him help you have a heart for God. Ask Him to touch your heart, to break your heart for the things that breaks His heart. Ask Him to give you compassion for the things that He has compassion for. Ask Him to give you a pursuit and a drive for the things that He pursues and that it drives Him. Come on, church. We need some intercessors now. We need some people to lift up their voice and give great praise to a great God. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.